All right, to fully, fully appreciate the story that we're going to be looking at this morning, I want to just give you a little bit of uh, foundational background. Let's see if we get this thing. So there's, there's a couple times in Scripture where we're introduced to what is known as the angel of the Lord. And in these specific instances that you're seeing here, it's pretty clear in the context and how he speaks and the claims that he makes that he's more than an angel, that it is, in fact, God speaking. At times, it's God physically appearing to people, but in the context, the angel of the Lord is God himself. And so to go where we're going this morning, I just want you to know and have that in mind that this angel of the Lord is, is God himself. Now, uh, so let's start trivia question for you. Anybody know, or you want to take a guess, where in Scripture is the first time we meet the angel of the Lord? It's not at the wall of Jericho. It's before then, even. Any other guesses? It is in Genesis. It is before Abraham. Well, we'll go there. Why don't you turn with me to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis 16 is where we first are introduced. And the first person that the angel of the Lord in Scripture reveals himself to is not actually Abraham, although Abraham will meet him later. It's to Sarai's slave, Hagar. So in case you're not familiar with the story, let me set it up for you just a little bit. Abram and Sarai have been called by God into the land of Canaan. God has made these big promises to Abraham. I'm going to turn you into a big nation. Your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And 10 years after this promise, Abraham and, Abram and Sarai have no kids. I'm, they have no land. They have very little land. Uh, and so Sarai decides, I'll take matters into our own hands a little bit. And she gives her slave Hagar to Abraham to bear a child for them. And so that's where we pick up here uh, in Genesis 16, verse 5. It says that Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. And then Abram says, well, your slave is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to shore. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. And the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son and you shall name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. And she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. 
and that is why the well was called Bir Laha Roi, and it's still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, let's continue with this, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. And so I want to zero in on this name that Hagar gives to God, the God who sees me. It's pronounced El Ra'i. We'll go here. Actually, let's get back. We'll keep on. El Ra'i. It, it's literally the seeing God. And, and it comes from uh, uh, the word Ra'ah, and that's going to play into here in the future. So I just want to hear you hear that or have you hear that word ra'ah, which means to see, but this is the gerund form, ro'i, seeing. It's the God who is seeing, the seeing God, the God who sees me. And, and so I want to highlight first off that we see something phenomenal here in that the way God sees things, especially people, is very different from the way people tend to see people. And so here, the very, the very first person in Scripture who the angel of the Lord reveals himself to is a person who, who checks off all the boxes culturally of being completely insignificant. Woman, foreigner, slave, some would even argue victim, right? Victim of abuse. It's to her that God goes to and finds her, where everyone else would have written it off as you're, you have no value, except maybe to drag you back to your master for maybe a reward, God sees value and God sees worth. And so God sees people differently than we tend to see people. We see, what do we see? Wealth, achievement, status, beauty. I mean, those are the things we tend to look at, and God just, he just doesn't. He just doesn't. He sees great value and wealth. So another, another trivia question for you. Anybody know these two women? Shifra and Pua. Because we see this idea of how God sees throughout Scripture, but I'm going to highlight a couple ones. They sound like names from some He-Man cartoon, but they're not. Shifra and Pua. No guesses. All right, we meet Shifra and Pua, if you want to go there, although I'll have it on the screen, in Exodus chapter 1. Would that help? They're the midwives. So here's, again, a little bit of background. Uh, by this point, for generations, the Hebrews, the Jews, have been slaves in Egypt. There's a new pharaoh who doesn't know Joseph and decides there's a lot of Jews in Egypt. Like, they could take us over very, very quickly. We need to limit the population. And so we read in Exodus 1, verse 15. It says that the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. 
for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. And so God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Now here's what's interesting. We don't actually know which Pharaoh this is, not with 100% certainty. We don't know who the Pharaoh of the Exodus is, which is odd because Moses is writing this, and we believe that he's writing it under the inspiration of the Spirit, or very possibly in the presence of God himself. He was writing stuff in God's presence. And so Moses knows the name of the Pharaoh. He grew up in his household, right? This is the same Pharaoh. And so I wonder, did he start to write the name of the Pharaoh? And God said, um, you don't need his name, actually. What, what do you mean you don't need his? He's the most powerful, significant figure. And this is a book of history. What do you, how, how do I leave off the name of Pharaoh? To which God is just kind of like, eh. I wasn't that impressed. But Moses you got to include the two women, Shifra and Pua, the two midwives. They're impressive. In terms of history and what matters, those two midwives, their names, their names should go down. Do you see it? God, God sees people very, very differently than the way we tend to see people. And he's like, they feared and obeyed me. Pharaoh, eh. But those two midwives, they're important. And so, and so this name that Hagar gives to God, the seeing God, it's, it's more than just that God is watching. It, it's more than God is watching and he sees a whole crowd of people of which you just happen to be one. It, it's, it's very, very much so, which is why they put it in the translation, the God who sees me. It's very, very personal. It's in that whole crowd of people, I see you, and I know you, and I know you, and I know your name, and I see you, right? Like, I know all of those personally. I love, it's the same word, by the way, that we see in Psalm 139, where the psalmist says, your eyes saw, ra'ah, my unformed body. You knew me before I was even born, and all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Same word, your eyes saw me. That very personal, I see you as an individual. If you will, you can go to uh, Jeremiah 45. became one of my favorite chapters after doing um, the, a couple studies through Jeremiah. And so in Jeremiah 45, we're introduced to uh, a guy named Baruch. Now let me, let me, again, set this up for you a little bit. Jeremiah is a prophet of God, uh, speaking to primarily Judah. He spoke to the kings, he spoke to the rich, to the priests, to the poor, in the temple, at the gates, through the streets. I mean, he just, for 20 years, Jeremiah is preaching to the people. And for the most part, their hearts remain completely hardened. And so God changes tactics a little bit. And he does something to get their attention. It's very similar to what we would do if we're like, we really, we really want people to know this story, let's make a movie. And so movies that are based on books tend to be very popular. 
because you make this assumption. You go, you know what? If they're going to spend all that time and resources and money to make that book into a movie, that's got to be like a good book. This is probably a worthwhile movie, right? That's sort of the thinking. In Jeremiah's day, that was the status of writing. Writing was expensive. No one, no one was writing unless you were educated, you had the money and the resources. And so when Jeremiah, or at times Baruch, stood in the temple reading a scroll, people would stop and say, wow, what's so important that they would spend the time and the resources and the money to put it into writing? That's what God was trying to do. Let's put it in writing so people understand how valuable and important this is. And so he grabs a scribe named Baruch. Now, one last thing you need to know. Scribes were one of the best jobs you could have. We actually still have papyri that describe if there's any job you should strive for, be a scribe. And it says you get paid really well. You have a great status. And to quote the one papyri, and you get to keep soft hands. In other words, there's not a lot of work. You just sit and write. But people revere you, and you get paid really, really well. Be a scribe. And so that was Baruch. He was a scribe. And so he's writing down, Jeremiah's dictating to him, all of his messages for 20 years. And he'd say, all right, um, all right yeah, this one time the Lord came to me, and he said, uh, thus says the Lord to you, to a king or to a priest. And so picture this. Jeremiah's talking. Baruch is there writing. And here's what we read, chapter 45, verse 1. When Baruch, the son of Neriah, wrote on a scroll the words Jeremiah the prophet dictated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, Jeremiah said this to Baruch. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to you, Baruch. Do you, do you, so he's writing. This is what the Lord of God, Israel, says to you, Baruch. Like, are you, are you kidding, Jeremiah? Like, is that a joke, Jeremiah? Was, no, 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 right now, God's, like, right now, he's, to me? He's talking to me, yeah, right, he's talking to you, Baruch. Should I write this down? Yeah, why don't you write it down? And so we still have it. This is what the Lord God of Israel says to you, Baruch. You said, woe to me. The Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I'm worn out with groaning and find no rest. Here's, here's, here's what God knows. You sacrificed all the blessings and benefits of being a scribe because you ended up with Jeremiah. And, and Baruch is like, and this is your fault, God. I could have made so much more money if I were somebody else's scribe. People wouldn't be mocking me because I'm writing for Jeremiah. I'd have the reputation that I deserve, and I've got none of that. And it's all on you. You added, my, you added sorrow to my pain. That's what he's accusing God of. And God hears it. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to you, Baruch. You said, woe to me, the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am worn out with groaning and find no rest. But the Lord has told me to say to you, this is what the Lord says. I will overthrow what I have built and uprooted what I have planted throughout the earth. Should you then seek great things for yourself? There it is again. Brooke is going, yeah, I want great things. That's what I trained for. I'm a scribe. We get great things. 
Should you then seek great things for yourself? He says, do not seek them. For I will bring disaster on all people, declares the Lord. But wherever you go, I will let you escape with your life. And so there's this, these words of encouragement that God, the seeing God, gives to Baruch. I see you, Baruch. I know the struggle that you're having. I hear exactly what's going on inside your heart. I know it, and I see you. And I want you to know a couple things. Number one, Baruch, you're making the right choice. You're making the right choice. I'm destroying all of this. Your status is going to mean nothing. Anything that you would have attained materially means nothing. You're on, you're on the right path. Keep it up. Baruch, I'm watching. I see you. I'm going to protect you. I want to make sure that you always escape with your life. And then I think just the third word of encouragement is Baruch, I do see you. I see you. I know you. I'm aware of your struggles and what's going on. And so Baruch continues to persevere as Jeremiah's scribe. And so, and so this idea, the seeing God isn't just the God who's watching. And it's not even the God who sees you individually and knows you individually. He's not distant either. He's involved. And we see it because we see the same name used this time by Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. And so I'll give you again a little bit of background in case you're not familiar. By Genesis 22, Abram has become Abraham. Sarai has become Sarah. And they have a child finally named Isaac. And then God tests the faith of Abraham. And he says, I want you to take your son, your only son, and sacrifice him to me. And Abraham by now has gotten to know the Lord pretty well and figures, well, I don't believe he could take Isaac from me. And even if he does, did, perhaps he'll raise him from the dead. And so he goes and he obeys the Lord. And so we pick up in Genesis 22, verse 9. It says, when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Now, the translators decided to do a little bit of interpretation here. That word provided, that God will provide, you know as Jehovah Jireh, but it's Jehovah Jireh. It's the same word. It could have just as easily been translated God who sees. It's actually what he's saying. And that on the mountain of the Lord, it will be seen. It's the same exact word that Hagar used. But, it, but they switched it because they understood 
this idea that he is a seeing God is, is more than just watching and it's more than just knowing you individually. It's that he is involved with you personally, individually. And so Abraham learns, it's kind of phenomenal, learns what Hagar learned many, many years ago. You are seeing God who provides and is watching and has my back. And so that's what he says, you are Jehovah Jireh. Now you're, you're, you might be thinking, give me a second. If God were so involved, then why did he allow this? And why doesn't he stop that? And why doesn't he give me this? Why didn't he, right? I mean, it's just where our brains go. If he's so involved and he knows me individually, then he would know he should have healed this and he should do this. But look, look at these examples that we looked at this morning. To, to Abraham, he went to him and said, I want you to sacrifice your son. That couldn't have been easy. And he doesn't, Abraham doesn't go on to a life of ease and comfort. He still has testing and there's still moments where he needs to trust God and trust that he's going to fulfill his promise. He didn't go to Baruch and say, hey Baruch, I see you. I hear what you're saying. I am coming to rescue you and bless you. He said, just persevere, Baruch. I know it's hard. That's what he, I get it. He doesn't even, you know what that, Baruch is saying, God, my life was hard to begin with, and now that I started serving you, it's worse. You've added sorrow to my pain. And God doesn't rebuke that, but he does say, I know, it's not easy. But I want you to know, keep persevering. Stay on the path. You're on the right path, right? You know what he says to Hagar? Hagar, I see you. I know what you're going through. I need you to go back. I need you to go back to Sarai. That's what I'm calling you to do. I'm involved I've got your back. I'm not guaranteeing it's going to be easy. And then, but there's something, there's something about knowing that he is a seeing God in that way that's transformative. And why do I say that? Because, because of all people, and I, and I do wonder, I wonder what, what was it that Hagar was able to say yes to that? I mean, she, she was a victim of abuse. She was a slave. She had no significance in anyone's eyes whatsoever. And God says, I want you to go back to that. And she says, okay. Because there, there had to be something in the way he spoke to Hagar and found her that was beyond just, I see you, that was compassionate. And I see your pain and I know the struggle. And he touched it in a way that she was able to go, okay, I can do it. A couple, couple weeks ago, <clears throat> I'm at the Dunkin' Donuts down the road, and uh, this woman had uh, three kids, and the one, the one was a boy, he was probably six or seven, it wasn't, wasn't her child, um, looked like it was a play date or something like that. And she said to this boy, she said, hey, I, I want you to go 
ask the guys behind the counter for something. I missed what it was. Go, go up to the counter and ask the workers for something. And at first he like jumped out of his chair and he took a few steps and then he stopped. And I kid you not, I, this is exactly what he said. He goes, I'm feeling scared. But he went and he went to the counter and he talked to the workers and he came back with whatever it is that he needed. Now, why, why was he doing that? Because he said to her, I'm feeling scared. And she said to him, okay, I'm watching. That was it. Like he, he understood what that meant. It means you've got my back. It means if I get stuck or I need help or something goes wrong, I can look back and you'll be there for me. That was it. I'm watching. And it gave him the courage to go, all right, then I can do this thing. Oh, that's what I'm praying for us and for you, that you know this seeing God. And whatever it is that you are struggling with in trial, temptation, questions, doubt, to be able to say and trust, but I, God, I, God is involved. He is seeing me. He's seeing my pain. He's seeing my struggle. And I trust that if he needed to step in and rescue me, he would. But he's doing something. That, that thing that God is calling you to do, and you're like, but I'm scared. But it means a loss of reputation or wealth or status or I risk embarrassment or whatever. That takes courage to be able to say, he's watching, he's got my back. He's, he's seeing me, and if he needed to step in, he would. But I'm going to move forward in faith and confidence and courage, knowing that he is the God who sees. And finally, I want you to know this God who sees if you don't know him as your Lord and Savior. You know, that, what he called Abraham to do in sacrificing his son and then providing a ram in his place is what God has done for each and every one of us. Because the Bible, the Bible teaches that there is a penalty for sin and that everyone has sinned. Pride, ego, selfishness, greed, us thinking we know better than God. Like all of that is sin and it's all born right into our very natures. And there's a penalty for sin. It says, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That is, that is, if you were to die with your sin upon you, you would be eternally separated from God. But then the Bible says that he loves you so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. He gave his son, just like he gave the ram, instead of Isaac, he gave Jesus, who died and suffered on the cross, in your place, so that you don't need to suffer and die. And it's through Jesus' death on the cross that there's forgiveness of sin. It's not by good works, by the way, for those who've grown up in a system or philosophy that I just need to be good enough, we can't be good enough. Good doesn't overcome sin. Forgiveness does. Or the payment of the penalty, and that's what Jesus did. So it's not by trying to be good or overcome your bad works with your good works. 
is a gift of God. Jesus' death on the cross was done in your place and is offered as a gift so that you don't need to do it by good works. You're accepting a gift and accepting that his death on the cross paid the penalty for your sin. And when you accept that, God calls you his child. And he says, you'll be, you'll be with me in heaven for eternity. And I pray that you would accept that gift today. Can we pray together? Father, I, I am in awe of you being a God who can see billions of people and know them by name and know the struggles that they face, the questions that they're asking, the doubts in their hearts, the pain. Father, we live in a world that is broken by sin and so there's pain and there's suffering, but you see us and you're involved in each and every life, guiding us and bringing us to a place where we would grow in our faith, where we would have courage and strength to live in obedience to you because you are working. You have a plan of which we are a part. So Father, I pray for those here this morning who have something on their hearts knowing uh, they need to move forward in courage, that this would encourage them. For those who are struggling with bitterness and anger against you, that this would encourage them to persevere and to trust that you're watching. For those who don't know you as Savior, I... I um, pray that they would reach out to you this morning. And so I do want to speak for those who are here, those who are online, and give you that opportunity to, to accept this gift of forgiveness. It, it's very simply, you might just say in the quietness of your own heart to God right now that, God, I do believe and accept that I am a sinner. And right now, I'm accepting Jesus' death on the cross as the payment for my sin to be forgiven. If you've done that this morning, good news is that your sins are forgiven. You are a new creation because of that decision. You have become a child of God. I would love, love if you made that decision this morning. Come, come talk to me or to Tim or any other pastors who are around. Share that with us. We'd love to get you started on your journey and your relationship with God. Father, you are good. You are great. You are faithful to us through all things. So we give you our worship, our praise, our obedience. For your name's sake and glory. Amen.